Welcome to Modern Prophets, where we chronicle the riveting stories and hard-won wisdom of individuals with addiction who have found recovery. I got my degree, and six hours later, I got my first DUI. And that was my graduation night. Over the next two years, from age 22 to 24, I got arrested seven other times. Reevaluated, hey, how did I go to jail twice? It was the smoking. I will quit smoking. If you weren't drinking and using in a way that was abusive, you, you were not a friend of mine. All these cannabis entrepreneurs, I, I think I was the OG of cannabis entrepreneurs. It sounds a lot better than, than a drug dealer. I let things slip, you know, and um, I got caught with 50 pounds of pot in the airport. I do get sentenced to two years in prison. Alcoholism and addiction is undefeated. It's like getting in the ring with Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson, and Sugar Ray Leonard. You are not going to win. And guess what? You're not different. So what I did is I... Everybody, how you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Ryan Keneally. I am your host. Welcome or welcome back to the podcast. It's good to have you here. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying or finding value in these episodes, please be sure to leave a review, follow so you don't miss an episode, and share the podcast with others. My guest today is Greg. Greg's been sober for more than 28 years after nearly ruining his life with drugs and alcohol. Amongst many things, he's a seasoned recovery professional, branding expert, author, TEDx speaker, and co-founder of Startup Recovery, a sober transitional living center that uses his proprietary life reset curriculum, aptly coined the recovery playbook, to help individuals suffering recover, build richer, more meaningful lives, and shift their addiction into passion and purpose. Greg has helped hundreds globally, and he's since gone on to make waves in the recovery and wellness spheres through his newest venture, Startup Wellness, a program designed to maximize mental, spiritual, and physical well-being. Greg is an entrepreneur through and through, always striving to be the best at everything he does, even when, at his darkest hour, that meant being able to chug the most beers or deal the most drugs. It took a DUI the night before his college graduation eight arrests in the span of two years from the ages of 22 to 24, getting busted in the airport after attempting to transport 50 pounds of marijuana across the East Coast, and a whole lot of self-awareness and willingness for Greg to finally get sober and into recovery for over a quarter of a century. This notion of addiction lives on a much broader spectrum than I think many of us might realize. When we think of addiction, we think of the junkie shooting up in a dark alley or the gutter drunk wreaking havoc in the streets. But in between that polarity, there's a whole spectrum of addictive behavior that ranges from continuing to get into the same bad relationship to being unable to put the phone down to relentless hours spent on work, where we're seizing moments or opportunities through behavior or substance to distract ourselves from ourselves because we are experiencing discomfort with whatever emotion is coming up and it's easier to divert to something that will give us a sense of ease and comfort or distraction than to sit with that sense of dis-ease. And I think that any kind of recurring, repeated behavior pattern that mimics that 
very same mechanism could be characterized as an addiction. It might be mild, but I think nonetheless, it's qualitatively the same thing as the person who can't stop drinking. There's so much value in this episode, whether you identify as an alcoholic in the rooms of AA or with the relentless pursuit of distraction on social media. I promise you will walk away from this conversation with something, be it insights, knowledge, or tools that you can apply to your life today. Greg is one of a kind, a world-class speaker and master storyteller with a recovery experience nothing short of extraordinary. So without further ado... Greg, welcome to Modern Profits. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. You've got over 28 years of sobriety and you have extensive, unequivocal expertise in addiction recovery. In college, I worked for Greg as an intern at Startup Recovery, which is a very successful and effective transitional living facility that he co-founded in 2017. So Greg, I'm eager to dive straight into your wisdom, but I wanna slow down and start with your story. So do you mind sharing your background, what it was like growing up, where you grew up, and some of the forces that shaped a young, impressionable Greg? Well, I just first want to say it's, uh, I'm very proud of you, Ryan. Um, um, for your listeners, Ryan did a wonderful job while she was here with Startup Recovery, and um, we loved having her here, her expertise, her wisdom, and just her overall energy that she brought to the office each day um, was second to none. So, and I'm glad you're doing this. I love the name of the podcast. Thank you. It's, um, I don't know if I'm a prophet, but. Um, you most certainly are. We will get there. <laughs> um, yeah, so real simple it is, um, you know, I think I just want to dive right into my childhood. Um, I'll just say that the, my, my first major memory was um, the death of my father when I was four and a half years old. He was killed in a drunk-on-drunk car crash. It was a Tuesday morning. And I remember my mother, I remember my mother coming in to my bedroom and I was thinking she's going to wake me up for school. And she's, the look on her face was something I'd never seen before. And um, I remember when I did go back to school, I immediately felt different. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt that, you know, you and he and they all had dads and I longer had, no longer had dad. And, and the way I felt was that I was a loser because I didn't have a dad. And, um, and what I found out over the next few years, age five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, is that I have a, an addictive personality mm-hmm. and that I had three addictions that showed up, um, in my early childhood, the first one was anger. You had a dad and I didn't. And, um, and what I did was I excelled in school, I excelled in sports, and I also became a bully. Mm. And um, the other addiction that showed up for me was attention. I had blonde curly hair, big blue eyes. Ryan, like you, I was the prettiest girl on the block, okay? <laughs> And, and um, I got a lot of attention from babysitters, teachers, my mom's friends, and that female energy coming at me was intoxicating for a five-year-old, six-year-old. Um, I also grew up um, in the late 70s, and I um, grew up basically as an only child. 
And so I had to create a lot of fantasy. And I love shows like The Six Million Dollar Man and Star Wars and uh, Charlie's Angels. I said, which one am I going to marry, you know? And I really played in a world of television. So fantasy, attention, and anger were my rotation, my trifecta of, of um, my uh, addictive personality. And then, you know, I just started sharing this um, about 10 years ago in my recovery. I, I began sharing that uh, a male neighbor was inappropriate with me when I was eight years old. And what came up for me was, um, you know, in that time of late 70s, was, God, am I gay? Am I straight? Am I gay? Am I straight? And, um, and I really overcompensated for it. I, I really got in a lot of fights. I remember um, any chance I could get my hands on a Playboy magazine, you know, I, I, would, I, would, I would go there. Um, and, um, you know, and fast forward 27 years, I heard a woman say in an AA meeting, we survived the event. You're here. You're vertical. You're present. But what you've been hanging on to is the perception of the event. Yeah. And I went, oh, my God. Because what happened for me was when my father died, I had the perception that I was a loser. Yet no one, no one ever told me I'm a loser. Never heard that word when I was eight years old. And that neighbor was inappropriate with me. You're gay. You're gay. No one ever said, you're gay. It was my perception. And, um, and I thought that, whoa, here I am, 27, 28 years in recovery, and I'm still getting tools. You know, and, um, you know, I had the great blessing of my mom remarrying. She married a, a great... A stepfather. Not many people get that, but I can definitely vouch for. For um, his name was Walt Janicki, and uh, he was a World War II vet. He was there D -Day? on D-Day. Huh? D-Day. D-Day. He was there on D-Day, and so Walt also taught me how to tie a tie, shave my face, open doors for women, please and thank you. The, these these great little um, things we learn um, from quality men, and he also brought. 17 years of a sobriety in the house and um he was a very calming force um and he loved my mom and i love watching my mom be loved um but i hate to tell you folks the the alcoholism the addictive personality had already left the station yeah yeah it's impossible to understand addiction without asking what relief the addict finds or hopes to find in the drug or the addictive behavior and then sort of what I call the Bermuda Triangle showed up for me. I, I, uh, 13 years old, going through puberty, entering my freshman year of high school. And uh, guess what becomes available? Drugs and alcohol. Bingo. The, the Bermuda Triangle. Mm -hmm. And I finally found relief. I found relief that I was going to smoke the joint, drink the beer, do the line of Coke. And the pretty girl from across the room would like me more than the other guy. You know, and I really followed that pattern for a long time throughout high school and college. Um, you know, I grew up, I, we moved to San Diego. So I grew up in San Diego, which is right next to Tijuana. 
and 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 I and I know many of your listeners. Um, well, I was in such a rush to get to grow up. You know, um, even in high school, I love Cliff Notes because I love shortcuts. shortcuts. <laughs> I love shortcuts, and my shortcut was hey. Let's just get the booze and the, and, and the blow and get going. And let, let's grow up. And um, it didn't serve me. Um, you know. Were you still an athlete at this point? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I was playing football um, and I was playing uh, uh, baseball um, and track. But um, your priorities were shifting a bit? You know, I was very well behaved during the sports seasons. It's when I didn't have the sports seasons. Okay. That it's, makes sense. Yeah, right? Yeah. Because... Yeah. I definitely held value, and I definitely held that value, um, those values, during the four years of high school. Um, but, you know, something that didn't serve me, um, and to kind of talk about fear, was when I when my dad died, my mom put me in the kindergarten when I was four years old, so I was always the youngest in my class. And I remember, like, you go to high school, and you go to the showers for the first time, and you're the youngest in the class. And you're looking over there and you're like, what's that growing over there? Why does that guy have so much hair? You know, and you just yeah. feel so body inadequate, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I battled that for the first couple of years and then everybody got their license and I was sitting waiting for my license. I didn't get my license to my junior year. So I always felt like when I talked to parents now, do not put your kids in school early. Later is better. There is no rush. So that's a sidebar, but, um, and, um, you know, I, I, if you called me an alcoholic in high school, I would say no, you know, even though I drank every Friday night and drank every Saturday night and, um, and I had that pattern, what would you call that pattern, Ryan, in your, in your work in terms of, you're not, you're not really, um, is it a binge drinker? Is it periodical? Is it- I would say you can have substance misuse without huh. being addicted to something. Yeah. So you're misusing. Misusing. And I was looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, here comes Friday. Here comes Saturday. Um, and then um, I want to tell everybody that I'm, I consider myself a fairly smart guy. Absolutely. I have a high IQ. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, my college counselor or my high school counselor was like showing me the schools that I could go to. They were trade schools. Okay. They, they want to become a mechanic, mm-hmm. air, air conditioning uh, uh, guy because my grades were so bad um, but luckily I got into one's college um, it was known for its higher education it was known as Arizona State University and what I will tell you is I went there for two reasons one I went to the because it had the Walter Cronkite School of Broadcast Journalism okay yeah and I wanted to be a sportscaster I I know a lot about sports mm-hmm. I, I thought I would have the, the correct looks I certainly had the last name Um, and so I went there and what I found were there were better alcoholics there. There were better drug addicts there. Um, and, and I was able to hide out for my years in college because there was definitely people who were screwing up way better or way worse than me. Yeah. Yeah. That downward contrastive social comparison. Oh yeah, for sure. And, um, I will tell everybody I I was not a good friend. I was a good time. Hmm. You know, I was the guy who could get you into a club or be a good wingman on a double date. But um, the people pleaser, people pleaser, um, always up to shenanigans, um, felt a different high when I would do something risky. So 
you know, just like risk taking. Like I, I liked risk taking um, events. Um, and I will tell you, this is a little bit of a, of a an embarrassing story. I remember being in broadcast journalism school, and they told me to go do a um, an audition for a sportscast. And we they wrote the script, they put me on camera, and I said to myself, "Oh, I got this. I'm fucking Greg Champion." Right? The camera light goes on, and I freeze, and I begin to sweat, and I begin to stammer and stutter, and Brian, I suck. They play the tape back, and I say in my mind, I'll never go in front of the camera again, ever. And I immediately switch from being in front of the camera to being behind the camera. Now, luckily, I had a fairly good career behind the camera. But what I want to tell everybody is that the reason why I sucked is, two, I didn't practice, mm-hmm. and I didn't have a coach or a mentor to say, dude, your first time out, you're going to suck. Yeah. So I want to tell everybody who's out there, like your first time surfing, you're going to suck. Your first time doing yoga, you're going to suck. Mm-hmm. First time you do a podcast, you're going to suck. Oh, yeah. Okay. But just have coaches and mentors get behind you. That, 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 that you know. And what I want to say, as you know, I've come full circle. I speak in front of thousands of people. I love being in front of the camera. Yep, yep. And I, I, I have healed that wound by, by doing the reps, mm-hmm. by doing the practice. And I would also say just shows the lack of self-awareness at that point in your life for 1000 percent, yeah and, and many young people oh yeah. i got this i'm the smartest person in the room you're not the smartest person in the room mm-hmm. far from it mm-hmm. um and uh what i try to do and ryan you noticed from the very first day i started working with you is um what a strong mentor does is he he or she gives you their mistakes Mm-hmm. So you don't have to make the same ones. Mm-hmm. So you can have a path of least resistance. Because you see, folks, Ryan is going to, she's going to be a superstar in two years versus 20 years. Because she's, she's taking <laughs> all of her mentors and coaches' mistakes, and she's on a fast track. Um, so I'm on a fast track. Um, got through college. Uh, got in the working force. Was making $19,000 a year. Drink, still drinking Mountain Dew and eating Top Ramen. And, and, and really, my first job was an overnight job at a TV station. So I was getting out at 3 a.m. I want to rewind because I, I know you got a DUI at one point. Oh, yeah. Wasn't that right before you graduated? You're right. Right. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Ryan knows me. Um, so, so they say in college, you know, after you get your degree, you're supposed to go out in the, in the real world. Well, I got my degree and six hours later, I got my first DUI. And that was my graduation night. Hello, um, real world. Hello, real world. Yep. That was arrest number one. Um, and being that it's arrest number one and DUI one, DUI one, version one, um, you kind of just get slapped on the wrist and, you know, you pay a fine and driver's license is suspended for a couple, uh, for uh, about six months. But um, over the next two years, from age 22 to 24, I got arrested seven other times. And another DUI, I got an assault charge, driving under the suspension, suspended license. Um, Ryan, you may know this famously, but I even got arrested twice in 24 hours when I was in Mardi Gras. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. And you want to hear Alcoholism 101? I, I get to Bourbon Street the first night, and I see this big Irish cop. And I go up to him, and I say, hey, I got to know the rules. What are the rules of this place? He goes, don't piss in the streets and don't fight in the streets. So 
kind audience and Ryan, what two things did I get arrested for? Pissing and fighting in yes, the streets. Exactly. <laughs> New Orleans. Yes. <laughs> nice. Yes, in New Orleans. So so and the funny thing is, those four days I was in New Orleans, I was smoking Marlboro Reds. I wanted to be like John Wayne, Paul mm. Newman, mm. you know, Steve McQueen. The fantasy is the still fantasy. there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That if I smoke I will look cool. Mm-hmm. And so when I got home and kinda reevaluated, hey, how did I go to jail twice? It was the smoking. I will quit smoking. And so I quit smoking. The way that we're so quick right? to lie and delude ourselves is, is crazy. Wow. Yeah, it was the smoking for sure. It was the smoking. <laughs> and so um, and so, uh, what happened was with this overnight shift at this TV station in San Diego, I would get out at 3 in the morning. And by this time, my high school friends were not taking my phone calls. My college friends weren't certainly following up with me. I, I was um, not, a, not a vision for you. Um, very self-centered, very narcissistic. Um, if you weren't drinking and using in a way that was abusive, you, you were not a friend of mine. Um, and um, so what happened was at three in the morning is I began to found new friends. And these friends were um, friends who, you know, like to deal drugs. These were young women I couldn't bring home to mom. These were lower companions who liked to start their day at three in the morning. And one of these gentlemen pulled me aside and goes, hey, um, college boy, I'm sure you have some friends on the East Coast. I said, oh, you know, people please. I got friends in Connecticut, Boston, D.C., New York. What do you need? Well, let's start sending them some pot back there. I said, how's that work? Well, we'll send them a couple pounds, put it in FedEx. FedEx doesn't check their packages and we'll see what happens. And over the next 18 months... Because you're an entrepreneur oh, and you have to take advantage well, of this opportunity. I mean, what you don't know, Ryan, is that all these cannabis entrepreneurs... I, I think I was the OG of cannabis entrepreneurs. It sounds a lot better than, than a drug dealer. Mm. But in real terms, folks, I was a drug dealer. And what I had around that term, and, and I'm sure a lot of people, is shame. Mm-hmm. The power of shame first came over me because... I was a good kid who went to private school from a good family, last name's champion, and you're a scumbag. You're a piece of shit. And I remember in order to, the way that the business got going was it went from two pounds to four pounds to eight pounds to eventually 50 pounds a pot delivered in suitcases, okay? And um, we were making good money. I had three cars. I lived in Winden Sea Beach in La Jolla, which is a nice neighborhood. So you're playing these different roles. I'm fantasy. Mm-hmm. I'm fantasizing. And I was really playing like guns, uh, cops and robbers. Yeah. And, um, but what I will tell your audience was each time I flew those suitcases, first it was six double vodka and cranberries. Then it was those drinks plus a couple lines of Coke. And then eventually I even dropped acid before I flew. And I don't know if those of us who've dropped acid, but being on a six-hour flight in a floating tube in the air is not a good place to be. (laughs) But I was in such shame, I had to medicate so bad. And so with that medication became became a real lousy job at being a drug dealer. I let things slip, you know, and um, I got caught with 50 pounds of pot in the airport. And I remember standing in front of the judge and the judge says to me, hey, you're a good kid. What happened? 
And I utter these three words because what I want all addicts and alcoholics to understand was as I stood in front of that judge, I was sober and I was in human form versus the animalistic form I was under the influence. I always say there's Greg and there's Greg the asshole. And Greg the asshole, when he drinks and does coke, he lies, he cheats, he scams, he connives because that's what that person does, that that animal does. When I'm standing in front of the judge, the judge says, how did he get here? And I say these three words, Ryan, I don't know because I didn't know. And the judge says to me, well, here's what I do know. If I see you in my courtroom in the next six, six months, um, I'm going to give you the five years of prison hanging over your head. Now, let me remind your audience, I was the prettiest little girl on the block. Okay. So you in prison. Me in prison is not going to be pretty. <laughs> it's not going to be pretty. So <clears throat> I go home. I lick my wounds. I eat a lot of Chinese food. I have some, I go to 7-Eleven to get big gulps. This, this sort of comfort food. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I don't pick up the phone. But then after a while, I get invited to the party of the year. And so 18 days later, I'm going to the party of the year. And uh, I'm in my little sports car. And I'm um, listening to uh, Duran Duran. Oh, okay. Hungry Like the Wolf. Hungry Like the Wolf. And um, headed up to Del Mar. And I've already um, drank six Moosehead beers, had two joints, and I have a couple bindles of Coke on me. And I walk in, and I'm not even there 10 minutes, and a complete stranger, um, maybe a younger version of your father, walks up to me. Did you know anyone at the party? Nobody. Nobody. Okay. Nobody. Nobody. Clean cut guy like your dad walks up to me. Hey, you got any blow on you? Oh, do I? Let's go. We go down the stairs, across the parking lot, get my little sports car. I whip out my Duran Duran CD case and I begin lining, I begin lining up some things. I present him and he presents San Diego Police Department badge. Oh, man. Exactly. And um, I woke up the next morning in uh, Del Mar. Very clean jail for Del Mar. Nice neighborhood. If you're going to get arrested, get arrested in a nice neighborhood. There's some advice for you. Keep that in mind. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Um, and I woke up in the fetal position, and, and they talk about it in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm sure they definitely talk about it in clinical journals, but the demoralization of, of myself. I, I, I was at my lowest of low. Because mm-hmm. I kept hearing in my head, five years in prison, five years in prison, five years in prison. And um, then I heard this. I heard from across the room, Greg, there's a better way. Greg, there's a better way. And I sat up, and there was no other inmate in my jail cell. There was no guard walking by. And the voice said, Greg, there's a better way. You should call your mother. Call my mother? Call your mother. All right. I call my mom. My mom's in her 60s because mm. she's of that older generation. And I tell her what happened. She's not crying. She's calm. And she says, Greg, you should go to church. Go to church? Gregory, you should go to church. And Ryan, you know when moms use their full name or your first and middle name together, they're serious. Mm -hmm. Right? So if your mother said something, how would she sound, Ryan? 
Ryan Grace. Ryan Grace. Okay. <laughs> middle name would be included. Yeah, of course. You see how it works. Ryan Grace. Okay. So I, I, I go to church at six o'clock mass. And um, after the mass, the priest says, hey, tonight we're going to have confession. And I got three confessionals over here. And I got three confessionals over here. Pick a door and go confess. And my very first thought, if I can confess, if I can, if I confess tonight, I can go out tonight. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, I'm so far. You didn't even think you had an issue with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm so far down the the thing. Like there, there's no issue. Like I like, I don't believe I'm an addict. I don't believe I'm an alcoholic. I yeah. just believe I got unlucky. Mm-hmm. Let, mm-hmm. That when Greg drinks and uses, he shows up in jail, and that ultimately became a, a story of mine. And so I chose door number two and I walk in and as close as I'm sitting to Ryan, which is about two to three feet, there is a a gray haired man with lightning blue eyes dressed in a white cloak. He has his collar, his white priest collar and an Irish accent, which I cannot do. And I've been telling this story for 28 years. He says, son, sit down and tell me your sins. And I said, father, when I smoke a lot of pot, I show up on Christmas on December 27th. When I drink a lot, I go to the bars across the street from this church and I hurt people. When I do a lot of coke, I date three women at the same time and they have no idea. And when I do all three of those, I fly large amounts of marijuana to the East Coast. And with a very powerful yet gentle hand, he sticks his hand down and he goes, son, stop. And so I pause, pull back. And he goes, do you think you have a problem with drugs and alcohol? No. And then he gives me that great look that all of our parents, coaches, teachers give us, even our sponsors, of, son, please tell me the truth for once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, I sit there, and I said, Father, you're the second man to ever ask me this question. And he goes, well, who was the first? I said, uh, my stepfather. He says, what was your stepfather's name? I said, Walt Janicki. He reaches across, grabs my hand, and goes, I was Walt Janicki's first sponsor. Wow. Wow. Wow, I have absolute chills <laughs> all over my body. I think it's safe to say you probably didn't go out that night. And so, um, <laughs> Wow, Greg. <laughs> And so um, every time I tell the story, I think of how divine, how a, how a, how, a, how a moment of providence stepped in, and um, what I thought was, whatever this man tells me to do next, I need to do. And so he says, "Your sins don't belong here; they belong four blocks up." at the Alano Club and there happens to be an A meeting starting at 7.30 <laughs> and I think you should go. Mm. And that was 11-7-1994 and that's wow. my sobriety date. Wow. That's inc- that's a total <laughs> God shot. Wow. Divine total, intervention to total, say the very least. Total God shot. And before I left, the priest pulled out a piece of paper and a pen and he gave me his phone number and name and his name on the piece of paper was Father Bill Wilson, which is the same first and last Your name AA of the founder. founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And he says, please call me tomorrow. I call him. I go see him in his office. And he says, I'm your temporary sponsor. He's like, I need to do three things. I need you to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I said, it's good because the judge wants me to do that too. I need you to don't drink or use no matter what. And I need you to take boxing lessons. <laughs> boxing lessons? Yeah, because you're going to have so much anger and resentment. You're going to need to put it somewhere. Mm. And so when I work with people, when I sponsor people, guess what I tell them? Those same things. Those same three things. Yeah. I want to unpack the power of the moment in that confessional too, because I think that the aspect of religion and the mention of a priest can be so polarizing to people that other elements of that moment might be overlooked. I think the power of, of that moment is many things. Um, some divine intervention, absolutely. But I think what happened in that conve- confessional that I think was one of the driving forces in your sobriety was admitting there was a problem to yourself and to another person, rigorous honesty, community, connection. Do you, do you feel like that resonates? Because I know that before you said you had lost a lot of your friends, yeah. your real friends, yeah. right? Right. And I think that you probably weren't talking to your 60-year-old mother about the suffering that you were going no. through. So that was really one so, of the first steps, admitting. And I was a very popular kid. I went from a 1,000 friends to zero friends, mm-hmm. all because of my alcoholism addiction. And um, what I would say, what I would encourage people regarding the priest or formal religion is, I look at it this way, is um, here was a man of the cloth who pointed me to a 12-step program that allowed me to find my own version of God. Mm-hmm. And my version of God today is the ripple effect. What you put in this world, you will get back Bingo. out of it. Mm-hmm. Bingo. And, that, and I've learned it bad and I've learned it good. Yeah. And, um, but was that the first time that you were able to have a moment of self-awareness to admit you were powerless over drugs and alcohol? Oh, for sure. It was, it was, if you think about it, it was step one, two, and three, all in the same, all in the same. Yeah. Place. Plus this moment of just absolute total Godshot divine intervention. Right. And, um, Yeah, I just, I, it was just such a big, I, I just thought, to my, so a big part of me is this, and I'm, I don't really, I don't think I've ever told anybody this, Ryan, is that mm-hmm. when I went home that night, I, I, I said a prayer. Mm-hmm. Oh, Greg. <laughs> I said, um, God, I won't drink if you give me a good life. And we both held up to our ends of bargain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And uh, maybe I should have said a great life. And then I would have had a nice jet. jet down, down, <laughs> Let's add a couple things. Yeah, I want yeah. a yacht. <laughs> no, but, but a good life is a good life. And I, I definitely have, have had a good life. And, mm. Um, mm. And, and it keeps getting better. Um, you know, whether it's your rabbi, your priest, your therapist, these people of wisdom are put in your life to direct you and all you have to do is walk through the door and that's what i did that night i just walked through the door so father bill wilson is your sponsor yep i know you didn't go to prison for five years so you want to know that story please so five years is hanging over my 
still hanging over me. You're still scared. Oh, for sure. I'm working with Father Bill. I have a pretty dynamic lawyer. And every time I go in for a continuance or a hearing, guess who goes in with me? Father Bill. Father Bill. And he wears his collar. And just like Obi-Wan Kenobi, he puts his hand up and he goes, let me have him for another three months. Mm -hmm. Let me have him for another six months, you know, and we begin building steps and a story and the healing. And this is not, he's not that guy. And, um, what ends up happening is we get there and, um, I do get sentenced to two years in prison. Um, I'm only required to do a year. Uh, I certainly am very scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, what I can tell you is that, um, I asked Father Bill, I said, I'm going in, I'm going in. What advice do you have for me? And he looks me square in the eye and he goes, just be you, just be you. And I thought, well, okay. And what I was able to do. Ryan was I get there and the leader of the black gang is my cellmate and his name is Supreme and I remember walking in and he's got on his little radio uh, Mary J. Blige I'm going down and I'll never forget that because I became a big fan of Mary J. Blige after this Mm -hmm. and if you listen to it you know there's a very poignant chorus and he just looks me up and down like what is this cracker doing here? Mm-hmm. Because I don't look like anybody. I got curly blonde hair, you know, I'm freshly shaven. I got a California suntan. And um, what happened was, and I still don't know why um, to this day, but he took a liking to me. He, after a few days, gave me my prison nickname. Which was? Smiley. <laughs> okay. Smiley. And, um, and, you know, he protected me Mm. and, um, I got a job in the library. Um, and, um, what I can say is that, you know, I certainly actually, what was cool about going to prison was this, was I used it almost as my rehab. I meditated in the morning. I went to meetings on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I read a ton of books. My mom, I, you know, my mom sent me a man's search for meaning. She sent me conversations with God. She sent me um, uh, the four agreements. Um, and um, I just took in knowledge, which in my prior life, I just never had time to read. Um, And I always get nervous telling this because, uh, you know, I'm sure I was inches and seconds away from something happening. But again, the the universe was looking out for me. So I will include this story because I think it's funny. Please. Um, Supreme had a guy named B-Down. That was his, because he's been down for so long. B-Down was in charge of the nudie magazines. And what happens in prison, 
with the nudie magazines, it's all done by hierarchy. The high, higher guys get the magazines first, and then the people who just got there get them last. But you can just imagine what the magazines look like by the time you get to this mm-hmm. lower rung. So I went to Supreme, and I go, hey, listen, I got this idea. He goes, what's this? He goes, I go, can you give me the magazines first? He goes, I can get you a couple. And so as Ryan stated earlier, I'm an entrepreneur. And so he got me a couple of these magazines. And what I did is I've been cutting the pictures out. And remember, I work in the library. So I have access to a lamination machine, a hole punch. I went by Lost and Found, grabbed some old shoes and shoelaces. And I created a product where I would take a picture, one nude picture and another nude picture. And I would laminate them back to back. (laughs) Poke a hole and use a shoelace. Okay. And I created a thing called Shower Mates. Oh, my God. Yep. And at this particular, oh, Greg, that's incredible. <laughs> at this particular prison, you don't shower in a group. You each have the individual stalls. And I went to Supreme and I showed him. I go, this will be a money maker. Now, there's no money being made in, in prison. What is the currency? So the currency is cigarettes. Okay. The currency is honey buns. Mm-hmm. Okay. The currency is um, deodorant. But cigarettes are the, the gold mm-hmm. because you get a pack of twenty, but you can make twenty transactions because each cigarette equals something. Supreme's eyes get as big as saucers. And he goes, I love it. And lo and behold, within a few weeks, Supreme's footlocker ends up being two footlockers because I have created such a thread of business for him that there's no way he's ever going to let anything happen to me. Mm-hmm. And so what would happen is a young man would come in, we'd give him his flavor. Maybe he liked redheads or blondes or whatever. There you go. Mm-hmm. And we'd always give him a, a compliment, 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 we'd always give him a complimentary little lotion okay and go on his way perfect perfect right and so for the next two or three months that was our business and now i kind of think back okay supreme was like okay this kid's this kid's a rainmaker for me (laughs) and i felt good about because it gave me like i'm an entrepreneur i'm making things i'm making people happy Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. smiley smiley i'm I'm smiley yeah and um then one day i'm sitting at lunch and um and what I realized is, is a bunch of the other prisoners have never been anywhere. They've mm-hmm. never been to Chicago. They've never been to Atlanta. They've never been to New York. They've just never been anywhere. And um, this one guy goes, uh, hey, football season's coming up. Who's your team? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm San Diego Chargers fan. He goes, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. I said, how can you be a Dallas Cowboy fan if you're from, from the East Coast? He's like, oh, I love Dallas. I said, I'm going to bet you 10 cigarettes you don't even know where Dallas is. Oh, I know where Dallas is. He pointed at... Wisconsin. You got 10 cigarettes. I got 10 cigarettes. <laughs> and wow, wow. That's right. It's a very small world. You'd be really surprised how small their world is. And, and, and yeah. so what came over me was, what if I could help these guys? And so what I did on my own accord is I put together a American geography class that used sports logos to show where they're where the cities are okay god where, greg you were incredible <laughs> so <laughs> so i went to the ordered and i go hey i have this uh six week um once a week american he goes don't waste their time and don't waste your time i said i don't think i'm wasting your time i think it's going to be fun let me do this and so i put together a six week american geography class using sports logos you know like if they saw 
the Chicago Bulls logo, they knew that's where Jordan played and that's where, you know, and so all of a sudden we would have tests, quizzes. Um, I would say, okay, give me the um, capital of uh, Nevada. And everybody would go, Las Vegas. I go, no, Carson City. And then I give them a history lesson on Bill Carson. Mm. You know, um, I would say, uh, you know, um, Lincoln, Nebraska, you know, why Lincoln, Nebraska, you know? And um, so I would stuff that we learned in the fourth grade. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, lo and behold, the first class has two uh, Puerto Rican guys. The next class has two Puerto Rican guys and four black guys. The next class has two white guys, four Puerto Ricans and four black guys. And I end up growing this momentum. Mm-hmm. By the fourth class, the warden sits in. Okay. And he sees this. And then he calls me in his office and he goes, listen, do you think you're supposed to be here? And I said, I don't know if I'm supposed to be here, but I don't want to be here. He's like, I don't think you belong here. And I'm going to cut six months off your sentence because of what I saw today. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I went into prison, I go, I got to be home before Christmas. I got to be home for Christmas. I can't spend Christmas in prison. And Ryan, as God is my witness, I was let out on Christmas Eve. And what you don't know, or maybe you do know, is I've actually taught at USC two semesters on entrepreneurship. I feel I'm a natural-born teacher. I hope one day I can reconnect with some of these guys if mm-hmm. they're still. Supreme. But, um, Where is Supreme today? Yeah, I would, I, I would, it's one of my newest things. And I've been seeing the word Supreme a lot. Mm-hmm. And I want to go find him. To be honest with you, if I had not been under his protection, I don't know. What, yeah. What, yeah. yeah. I, I bet I have a bunch of tattoos. I bet I've been violated a few times. And I probably would have thrown myself off, you know, uh, one of the buildings. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Were you working the steps while you were in prison? Oh, yeah. What was that like? So working the steps in prison was I, I was able to take time. Well, mm-hmm. So first of all, I, I didn't have a sponsor in prison. Right. But I had a counselor who was an AA. Okay. And when I walked in and I told him my Father Bill story, he goes, well, there's step one, two, and three. You're already done. Mm-hmm. So we began already working on step four. Okay. And we worked on step four, and I gave a shitty step four because I had secrets and you weren't going to find out about them, mm-hmm. which means I wasn't being truthful in step five. I certainly wasn't ready for my character defects, which I certainly can talk about more with you. Mm-hmm. Um Step seven's all around honesty, you know. Well, I was the, I was the shower mate guy. How honest was I, you know? Mm-hmm. Do I really want to be known as the shower mate guy? You know, <laughs> like, like, uh, right? Right. right. Stick to Smiley. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, stick to Smiley. Yeah, and then clearly the amends process in eight and nine um, was probably going to have to wait till I got out of prison. Mm-hmm. And ten, I was definitely doing. I was doing a, a, a tenth step. Eleven, I was praying and meditating for damn sure. And the 12th, which is being of service, I certainly was doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it, when, when Father Bill told me to be, just be me, Ryan, I would have breakfast with the white guys. I would have lunch with the Puerto Ricans. Mm-hmm. And I would have dinner with the black guys. And I don't know anybody who has been in prison before or after who, who could navigate that. Mm-hmm. It's just, I guess I was so naive, but that's who I am. Mm-hmm. I just, I see you as a human being. I want to know your story. Tell me more. I'm going to learn from you. And I learned a ton. 
I learned a lot of stuff about street stuff. I learned a lot of stuff about social economics. But that is your superpower, being able to connect with every single person that you meet and encounter in your life. And you've carried that through, it seems, even your darkest hour. Yeah. So that's... uh. Yeah, so, so you, you got some, you, you got, you got some stuff out of me, Ryan. That don't really people don't get out of me. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so fourth and fifth steps, those were hard for you. They were, um, and and what I will tell your audience is that I, I when I got when I returned back to civilization, I got a traditional sponsor, home group, took commitments, um, but I worked step one, two, and three, and then I pull a Kaiser Soze, mm. poof. Mm-hmm. And leave and go find another town, another home group, another sponsor, work step through it in three. And then and, and did this three or four times for the first three or four years of my sobriety. And then one guy at a podium literally told my story. Father died early, was molested as a kid, had a single mom, mm-hmm. you know, struggled with creativity. Um, and uh, And I went up to him and I said, hey. Uh, I don't know if you're going to be my sponsor, but will you at least take me through the step four and five? And what he did that was different from all the other step fours and fives is he created the shame column. The shame column was separate from anything else AA had. And the shame was, he just put the word shame at the top. And he says, everything that's still inside of you, you need to write down. Mm -hmm. And so I took his suggestion and I wrote it down. And then what he did is he had me uncover, discover, discard. Remember when I told you I was a bully? Mm-hmm. Well, that was number seven. And I told a specific story about being a bully. And here's what he said to me. Is that who you are today? And I go, no, not at all. Mm-mm. He goes, well, first of all, right then and there. Right then and there, you got to set yourself free because that is not who you are. Yeah. And then who's the kid you bullied? And I told him, he goes, I need you to go in front of his house and I need you to pray for that younger version of him because he let himself be bullied. Then I need you to go next door and pray for the younger version of you Mm -hmm. because hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. And we did that on the other 16 things around money, around sex, around all that stuff that, that, that we have shame around. And so I would just encourage your audience to uncover, discover, discard. Is that who you are today? Where can you go to go make peace with that? And then at last but not least, you finally have to let it go. And so when I got done with that list of 17 things, I went on a long hike to Mescal Canyon right here. You know that? Mm-hmm. I hiked up and down and I went and swam in the ocean and I felt cleansed. And the reason I was able to tell you that story earlier about the neighbor being inappropriate with me is because I had done that exercise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I figure if one male or female listens to this podcast and can set themselves free from some childhood trauma, drama, pain, or shame, you and I have done done our job today. And so the lucky part of it was, (laughs) this is how cool it is, a few few days later, a very famous boxer Mm -hmm. who your dad knows, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard, as part of the twelve-step group, hmm. you got a he, lot of cool guys in in the AA meetings we, we, you frequent. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's 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 our own version of Avengers mm-hmm. <laughs> with two A's up front. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Sugar Ray Leonard, who who is public about his sobriety, um, was writing a book, and in his book he talked about a coach being inappropriate with him. Mm. And I thought to myself, 
holy shit, here's the champ. Here's the world, you know, one of the top three boxers of all time, a proud black man who just told 30 men in the room that someone was inappropriate with him. And so I went up to Ray after the meeting. I said, hey, Ray, I know you're busy, but can we do breakfast sometime? Oh, sure. And my nickname's Champ, too. He goes, yeah, Champ. But I go, this is weird. <laughs> and uh, I go, you're the Champ, by the way. <laughs> and um, and, I, and so we went to breakfast a few days later. And I said, Ray, I have something to tell you. And I told him the exact details of what happened. Mm-hmm. I said, you've been able, because of what you did, I'm able to set free. And here's what he says. He goes, now I need you to keep telling so more people open up and come out with that sort of thing. Yeah. And so. Here you are. Here I am. Is that the point at which you, you feel like you transitioned from physically sober to emotionally sober in recovery? How long did it take you to get to oh my God, fully Brian, all in? That's, that's a great um, timeline point for me. I, I think that now that you've brought that up, I think you're right. I think that was, I think by doing a, that shame list, because the reason why he had me do the shame list, he kept saying to me as we were sponsee and sponsor, you're blocked. Mm-hmm. You're blocked. I said, what do you mean I'm blocked? I live in the Palisades. I, uh, you know. Successful. Yeah, exactly, right? He's like, but you're not exactly where you want to be. Mm. And so by doing the exercise, by sharing that news at Ray, um, I felt like I was now unblocked. And what happened for me was right around that same time, uh, a beautiful man approached me and said, hey, I went to Tony Robbins. I learned how to do breath work. Would you come down this Tuesday night to this yoga studio in Venice? And it wasn't a good part of Venice. And lay down on the floor and we'll, we'll do some heavy breathing with like six or seven other men. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Right? Mm-hmm. And I went down there. And his name is John Paul Crimi. He is a world-renowned breathwork coach now. Mm-hmm. But 10 years ago, he was just a ex-comic writer who had a few years of sobriety who found his calling through Tony Robbins Mm -hmm. and I got down on the floor and of the six men on the floor two of us were in the fetal position two of us were crying and two had to leave because it was so intense and I discovered breath work a new tool a new tool and what that breath work helped me with Ryan was anger Mm -hmm. and um, breath work has really, really helped me. So I think you are right in the timeline that by letting that shame come out gave me opportunity to start collecting tools, start collecting emotional tools. I took on acupuncture. I started going to more mixed meetings because I needed to hear how women's pain, shame, trauma, and drama came about. Mm-hmm. Reason might being, guess what? I'm surrounded by women. Yeah. I have a lot of women who I work with. I'm certainly married to a woman. I have... You were willing. I have two... At that time, I had two daughters. Now I have three daughters. Mm-hmm. So, so as my sponsor says, you better get used to women because they they're all around you. <laughs> and so, as you say, as you just sneaked in there, you're willing to be willing. That is my mantra yeah. for anybody who goes, Greg. How do you have 28 years of recovery? I have remained willing to be willing. Mm-hmm. So walk me through your transition from the entertainment industry to creating a successful recovery brand. Thank you, thank you for asking. I, I think that's a so. First of all. I think we're all, we all come to a wise in the road. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I welcome the wise in the road. 
because it allows me to stop. I can't go anywhere yet. I don't know if I'm going to go left or right. And, 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 really ask, and really ask for guidance around that. Mm-hmm. And what I will tell you is that I had worked at Fox. I'd worked at DreamWorks. I worked at NBC. I'd worked my title up to executive producer. Um, and I was doing sports shows and documentaries and talk shows. And then I got the opportunity to start my own company. And I just want to touch a little bit on that. Um, For about two or three years, I dated half of L.A. Mm. I was sober. I was not snorting cocaine, drinking, but I certainly was manifesting, filling that empty hole with other human beings. That intensity, that friction. Yeah, the the chase. Mm -hmm. Just like chasing an eight ball of Coke, chasing a pretty girl at the bar was the same mechanisms Mm -hmm. and and i and i say that openly with all sincerity because what i want men and women to do is is to listen to this and go okay what's this guy what was this guy's solution because i feel like i'm overdoing it with men and women and what happened was um a mentor came up to me my boss at nbc and he goes listen you you can have a big career but you're never going to have a big career or your own story if you keep putting your energy towards dating three women at the same time, Mm. he's like, if you were to shift that energy over here and focus on your career, you would have your own company in a year. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I trust him. I like him. I see what he has. Right. We always look at mentors or coaches like, okay, show me what you got. Maybe I'll believe you. And uh, his name was Gary Considine. Very uh, wonderful, kind man. And over a year's time, Ryan, I, I quieted the, the the dating card and I began really spending time in on Thursday nights. I got up early on Saturday mornings and I, I worked on pitch decks and scripts and, and TV ideas and, and marketing campaigns. And lo and behold, um, I'm working on a shoot and um, I'm working with Shaquille O'Neal and Cadillac at the time. And right down the right down the, the red carpet is this guy working for Doritos, and he comes over to me. He goes, "Hey, do you have a card?" I said, "Oh, I'm working. I work for a company right now. I don't have a card." He's like, "That's too bad." He's like, "If you had your own company, I'd think about hiring you." I said, "Why do you say that?" I like, "I've seen you on shoots three or four times. You're great with A-listers. You're very good to your crew. I've seen the finished product, and I really like to work with you." And I went home kicking my like, "God damn it! Why don't I have my own company?" what a what a back to what a loser you know but then i thought to myself i need help and so i called a friend of mine who's an editor and a web page builder and i said hey i need to build a website he goes give me your thoughts i said it needs to it needs to scream media and entertainment it needs to it needs to look cool he's like what's the what's the collateral i said well i got pictures of me with tony hawk Tiger Woods, Tom Brady, Heidi Klum. Mm-hmm. He's like, send me those pictures. I sent him the pictures. And he goes, well, what do you want your logo to look like? I said, I don't know. It just surprised me. Literally, this guy works through the night. says, check your email. I click on it. And there is this beautiful one-page web page with a logo that looks like the old Entourage logo. Okay. That says Champion Media and Entertainment. Okay. And I see There's the picture. That's my company. And I send the, I send the link to this guy, 
at Doritos. He Two days later, he calls me back, congratulations, I'm your first client. Six months later, his wife calls me. I hear you're doing great work with my husband. We're about to do Barbie's 50th anniversary. How would you like to have that account? So my first two clients in the door were Doritos Slam dunk. Wow. and Barbie. <laughs> and I proceeded to grow on that, grow mm-hmm. on that. Eventually, my company was acquired. And in 2014, I was working for a good, good group of guys down in Venice. And then they had some infighting. And the infighting was causing people to leave. And so the company went from 20 people to 15 to 7 mm-hmm. down to 4. Now, Ryan, I'm employee number four. So what's about to happen? About to get cut. I'm about to get cut, right? Was this during the recession? Huh? This was, uh, no, this was uh, 50, uh, 2015, 2016. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, I certainly lost my ass in the 2008 financial stuff. That that for damn sure. Um, but A the lot good, of people. The good thing that came out of that in 2009 was I found the bank meeting, the famous bank meeting here in the Palisades. Someone directed me to that, which directed me to these wonderful men, to people like your father. Yeah. And those men. And mm-hmm. those men took me in. They said, get in the boat. You're gonna, we're going to row with you and let God be the rudder. But in 2015, 2016, I can start to see the writing on the wall in the entertainment business. I, the, 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 the headaches are getting more and the checks are getting smaller. And three things happened for me. One is um, one of my mentors at USC, um, who let me guest lecture at his class for nine years, asked me to um, take one of his classes. So now I was able to teach entrepreneurship at USC. And boy, I love teaching, Mm -hmm. you know. And Ryan, oh, by the way, I've come a long way from prison to USC. (laughs) Okay, so so that that fed my soul, uh, the teaching. The second thing that happened was um, I kept saying this mantra and I hope you may embrace this because you're already doing it, Ryan. God, I want to get paid for being me. Now, on the surface, it sounds very egotistical. Who the F does this guy think he is? That he deserves to get paid for being him. But what I realized at the time, maybe not in a formal mode, was that I had 40-something years of life, 20-something years of recovery, and those were chapters of a metaphorical book that I could pull down and help a young woman get back into school, help a young man, you know, start a a career, help couples um, who couldn't have children have children. Like there were certain things that that were just awesome things that I had lived for, survived, and had a lesson for them to learn. Mm -hmm. And that mantra was about to come true. So I'm speaking at a a 12-step meeting. Um... This is a mixed meeting that my sponsor told me to go to. And uh, I tell my experience, strength, and hope. I talk about teaching at USC. I talk about getting sober in my 20s. I talk about mentoring people that are first, second, and third jobs. And um, after it's all over, this little lady comes up to me. She's like a female Yoda. Mm. You would make a great group facilitator. Excuse me, ma'am. No disrespect, but what's a group facilitator? She's like, oh, come here. She's like, it's when someone goes into rehabs and sober livings and, and IOPs and gives their version of recovery. And I said, well, I, I don't know what version you're... She goes, I just heard your version. Mm-hmm. And I can get you a job up at Sober Recovery in M- Malibu. And that's so, how you got paid for being you. And that's how I got paid for being me. And so what I did, Ryan, was I went into these groups 
and there were many there were millennials and a little bit of Gen Zers, and they want nothing I want. Mm-hmm. They're like, who's this old bald guy? The 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 folks the the blonde curly hair had had long gone, <laughs> the wrinkles had arrived, and there was no more prettiest girl in the block. And so I'm in these groups, and but what happened was I would be able to teach these guys about entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. about branding, pitch decks, uh, shifting addiction to your passion. Mm-hmm. And I would grade myself on what the groups were. So I got an A here. This is a B plus. Oh, that was a D. We'll get rid of that. Mm-hmm. And I took all the A's and B's and I put them over here and I created a curriculum called the Recovery Playbook. Mm-hmm. And the Recovery Playbook is really answers this. I'm sober. Now what? Mm-hmm. So how did that name come about? <sighs> you know... Recovery and playbook? What does that mean? So let me back up just a little bit. So when I went into those groups, I had to have a company name. Mm-hmm. So, and I had not created a recovery playbook yet. And so this woman goes, what's your company name? I go, uh, let me get back to you. And I didn't want to use champion again. I thought champion was too prideful. Mm. You see that? There's some emotional growth right there mm-hmm. in 10 years difference. So what I did is I went to my mentor, um, Professor Patrick Henry at USC, and I said, I have this great idea. I'm going to start a coaching business. I want to help others. I want to use the entrepreneurial spirit. I'm giving him a whole pitch. And he's real direct champion. Shut up. He's like, listen, I've seen you for nine years. You know, you know only two things really well. You know recovery and you know startups. And he held his hands out and I grabbed his hands and I moved him to the other thing. And what came about was startup recovery. And I added the tagline, shifting addiction to passion. And that was the uh, mothership for the recovery playbook. Now, Ryan's question is, how do we come up with the recovery playbook? Well, I think someone has said, you know, champ, you got sort of a bulletproof playbook for recovery. And I said, well, I don't think there's any, anything ever bulletproof, you know, so I didn't want to use that. But I saw that word there, recovery. Mm-hmm. I was going to return back to my sports days, mm-hmm. you know, Please. and I remember I was out to dinner with a group and I was kind of pontificating, you know, like some dating advice to them. They were, uh, uh they, they were friends, but they wanted some dating advice. And I said, you're just looking for the other team's playbook, aren't you? Right. And so all those sort of things came about, like recovery mm-hmm. was over here, playbook was over here. I did have some good dating advice. How was how this? All, and all of a sudden, boom, I just, I just slipped in recovery playbook. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And that's, um, that's how we got that. So I, I imagine that your recovery playbook today, the tools you use to maintain sobriety and recovery, looks different from the playbook you had when you initially got sober yeah. on 11794. And a lot of people listening to this podcast are going to be people without severe addiction or people who are newcomers to recovery. So two questions. First question, what is a recovery playbook? Walk me through the curriculum. Second question, for those people, what was your playbook during the first year of sobriety? Talk to me about the things, the tools, habits, rituals, the plays that you hung on to that helped you get that one year of sobriety. Okay. Cool. So the recovery playbook as it stands today is 12 plays, as we call it. Um, I've named them. Um, They're the 10 intentions, the post-it. There's the lies lies you tell yourself, uh, the mask you live in, and um, the backpack of shame. 
Um, there is also um, the uh, there is shifting addiction to passion, which is basically I take a schedule and we look at what, how busy you are. You got you got to go to your yoga class. You got to go to work. You got to have dinner with the folks. You got to and I find two spots in your week for you to work on Project Me, which is your book, your movie. Your soundtrack, something that brings you joy, is about shifting addiction to passion. And these 12 plays literally can be done by anybody. Your normies, they have shame. The post-it is the word of the year. I give you a word that you put where you brush your teeth every morning on a post-it. And that word reminds you of, a, of, a, of a, um, something you want to get rid of or something you want to keep. Um, the lies we tell ourselves, well... If we're lying to ourselves, we're certainly going to lie to everybody else. And it's an exercise of how to, what, what a lie looks like and how to get out of it and how to stop lying to yourself. Um, the Mask You Live In is a great documentary that I show all my clients the first 20, 25 minutes. And it's really the falsehoods that we were raised on, on what men should be and what women should be. And it's a real good why in the road that that used to be our story, but now we're going to go do something else. Um, Balanced. Huh? Balanced. Balance. And what I and, and and to Ryan's point, when we did some uh, videos for the recovery playbook, the cameraman um, did the ten intentions, and on number four of his ten intentions, he wanted to get an increase in pay, and he wanted to get a Tesla. And four weeks later, he called me and goes, "I got a thirty-four thousand dollar raise." Six weeks later, he bought a Tesla. So works for everybody. I am. It works for every, everybody. Manifestation is one of the biggest keys in life, and so I would encourage anybody to go check out the recoveryplaybook.com. There is definitely lessons for you there. Uh, you can certainly reach out to me directly either through social or the email that's on that uh, to learn more about the recovery playbook. But Ryan also followed up with a question of what was what was my playbook when I first started, and first of all. Um, I was scared out of my daylights. Um, a lot of what I was doing was to save my ass, which was okay. Um, I thought that, you know, God played a good part in my um, process, which is good orderly direction. And I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. I began working the steps. Um I began going to work on time. I had to get a legitimate job. Um, as you heard earlier, I, I couldn't get to step four or five, so that was my own hang-up. Um, I went to meetings after the meeting. I would go have coffee or, or breakfast. with, and, and when I got sober, no no kids were getting sober when I was kids. It was all old people. <laughs> old people, they're 50. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so... I just remember that I just wanted to stack days. I, I, I was, you know, 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, 60 days, cl collecting chips. Um, and um, and I remember that the hardest days were when I was um, would wake up in the morning and I get the fuckets. You know, that being sober wasn't fun. That we're all my friends. Um, why am I hanging out with old people? And, and again, I just go back to being so scared about going to prison that I thought I just had to keep doing the work. Um, 
what I can tell you now is that what I was missing out on, which I think so many young people, is the tribe, the community. Find your people. Um, and what I try to teach and mentor today and coach is really try to find your tribe. Um, yeah. I believe community is the key. I think that isolation is such a prominent feature of addiction. And I think that part of isolating emotionally, mentally, even physically is to protect that false narrative that you create that allows you to engage in these self-destructive behaviors and to protect the delusions that you are telling yourself, the rationalization of use. And so I think part of connection, community, and tribe, what makes that so important is that it allows you to take down that wall that you're building around this false narrative and you can't keep lying to yourself you know when you're connecting in a community in a tribe yeah, you're you're um you're so correct ryan it's um i always say it's a we our us program um listen folks alcoholism and addiction is undefeated it's like getting in the ring with muhammad ali mike tyson and sugar ray leonard you are not going to win and guess what you're not different if you've been I always say this to newcomers. Uh, when I'm speaking at a meeting, I'll say, if you want to know you're an alcoholic, if you've ever been to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or currently sitting in one, you're an alcoholic. And so, um, you know, our four cornerstones here, and you know this, Ryan, by working here, are accountability, community, education, and love. Mm-hmm. And um, I think those are pretty good four cornerstones for life. You know, we got to suit up and show up. Um, and the job you have now is not going to be the job you have in five years. Please know that. So I want to go back to the, the point about recovery principles, the recovery playbook, not necessarily being recovery specific. Yeah. You don't need a background in addiction or mental illness to benefit from these plays, these tools, these principles. And it sort of demonstrates and articulates the ways in which the principles of recovery can be applied to people who don't suffer from severe addiction. Lessons for how we can begin to navigate today's hypermedicated, overstimulated, dopamine-saturated world. So can you talk to me about some of these plays like the digital scrub in a bit more depth? And I'm, I'm curious about the backpack of shame. Was that similar to the uncover, discover, discard process? So so the digital scrub is, I, I don't know. I if, love this one. <laughs> yeah. The digital scrub is this, is I, I will sit with a client. They don't know what's going to happen. And I'll go get your phone out. They'll get their phone out. And I'll be like, okay, anybody of lower companions, girls and boys you can't bring home to mom, or anybody that's done you wrong has to get off your phone. And the reason this happened was a few years ago, someone asked me to take a newcomer to a meeting. His name was Mark. I put him in my phone. And a few days later, it's time for me to text Mark. And so I go to look for him, and right below Mark is Marnie. And Marnie is this woman who crushed me in love. Mm. I found myself in the fetal position for four days. I lost 13 pounds. I was calling my mom 20, every 20 minutes. And, you know, it was a heartbreak. 
But why? But what happened when I saw Mar- Marnie's name was all those feelings came back, and it was 15 years later. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, what is she even doing in my phone? And so I, there went Marnie. She's gone. There went this guy who screwed me over in a business deal. There went this. There went Tiffany Vegas. If you got a Tiffany Vegas in your phone, she needs to go. You know, if you got a Tom Manhattan Beach, if you got if you got names of people that are locations as last names, they gotta go. Mm. I, I I even had one client who had handsome guy in first class. Mm. That was in her phone. Mm. And so the point is is that as we went through it, what happens is this. You're freeing yourself mm-hmm. in the digital scrub. You're not going to have those moments of anxiety or depression based upon a name coming up ever again. But more importantly, Ryan, what is the one thing we take everywhere? Our phones. Bingo. So now you're carrying these dirt bags around with you. Mm-hmm. And if you do a digital scrub, no longer are you doing that. Mm-hmm. You're freed up in two ways. And so that's part of the digital scrub. The other part is we go in and we clean up your social media. Mm-hmm. We, we now have rebranded you. Because mm-hmm. you're no longer a, a drug addict and alcoholic. So we're going to go to your LinkedIn page and make you a nice picture, give you a new title, pump up your, your job duties and all that kind of stuff, and really set forth um, and point you in the right direction of the new version of you. That's the digital script. The backpack of shame is what I described earlier, which was the shame category. Mm-hmm. It's just a sh- piece of paper. You put all the things that you have never told any before on the piece of paper, and then you go share it with your priest, your rabbi, your best friend, your counselor, somebody, some human being where you make the deal. Ready, Ryan? Between you, me, and the good man upstairs, or good woman. I'd have, we won't know until we get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Real quick about character defects. I do want to touch about that because that part of my emotional recovery has come from my character defects real simply put i've had many people spiritually based religiously based and uh business based say to me you can find the character defects in the seven sins pride lust anger greed envy sloth and gluttony okay most human beings have three core character defects i'm going to give you mine Lust, pride, and anger. And the reason why I say these are my three cores is because they've been with me since I'm eight years old. 18, 28. And what I mean by that, yes, I would lust after women. But more recently, I would lust after the fantasy life. Where's my jet? Where's my second house in Aspen? Why don't I have a yacht? And I begin, why isn't Heidi Klum calling me up and saying, let's go on a date? And I can spin out in Fantasy Island. And what happens is I get disappointed, and so you've hurt my pride, so therefore I have to show you my anger. And it happened for me time and time again. And what I was able to do as a true, cool, and again, the 12 steps can work for anybody. I'm going to, maybe Ryan will make me do this, but I'm going to write a New York Times article one day that says the 12 steps should be in every fourth grade class in this country. And here's why, folks. I'm powerless over the bully and my life has become unmanageable. I'm powerless over the helicopter parent and my life has become manageable. I'm powerless over the mean teacher. If you look at it from a fourth grade's perspective, they have issues going on. And if they use the other 11 steps, it would lessen their pain, their shame, right? Their, um, Their struggle. 
But more importantly, if you could set up groups where fourth grade kids could raise their hand in a safe place and go, hey, here's what's going on in my home, and watch the other kids nod, yes, that's what's going on in my home, yeah. guess what? You're beating them to the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, it's a really powerful prevention intervention. I like that a lot. The is that fantastic? The health services researcher in me is, <laughs> is a bit more <laughs> cynical in the fact that I'm more harm reduction approach yeah. based in that like people I think will find it no matter what, but not to detract from that important preventative measure. I think that's even if it wasn't just some sharing, Yeah, some sharing, mm -hmm. because what happens is the kid, he sees his parents divorcing. He can't tell his friends cause he's going to feel like a loser. Mm -hmm. A kid gets has a neighbor who are, or a babysitter who's inappropriate. He can't tell his friends cause he, He's going to feel weird. Like if you think about it, as soon as you start to feel different, you're looking for the solution to quiet that voice. Yeah. And if we can find a solution by putting our hand in the air before the Bermuda Triangle hits at age 13 with puberty, right? All that what I described earlier, mm -hmm. I think there is a good, good place to start. Yeah. I want to also get back to an important point that you mentioned about the character defects and how those dovetail into painful events that you've had to go through in your sobriety so what are some of the tools that you use today when painful things inevitably come up well so a couple of things one i have a board of directors um my board of directors is made up of three men and three women who have these three qualities long-term sobriety long-term success and long-term marriages and for me, I want to be successful in those three categories. Um, second is that um, I really try to get the lesson out of something bad. I, I've, I've learned the most from failure. I've learned the most from problems. I've learned the most from bad people. And um, what I will know, what I will look for is the lesson after it. I'll give you an example. In 2016, I'm sitting in a meeting with your dad and some other men at 8 o'clock on a Saturday, and my phone rings and rings and rings, and so I finally have to step out. And I was deliver delivered the news that my sister, who's bipolar, was off her meds, and she'd been off them for two weeks. And on that morning, she decided to hop in her little car um, just outside of uh, Prescott, Arizona, unbuckle her seatbelt, crossed the double yellow line at 120 miles an hour and run into an 18-wheeler and killed herself. And what I did was a couple things. I walked back in the room. The men saw that I was visibly uh, not with them. And I put my hand up immediately and I said in real time exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. And here's what followed. Take your medicine. I know some old timers are like, you can't be under meds while you're in, I'll take your medicine. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is if the yoga class every day at 6 a.m. is your medicine, go to your yoga class. If the ther yeah. therapist appointment is your medicine every Tuesday and Thursday, go to your therapist. If your bipolar medications, you take that. Take your medicine. Mm -hmm. Because I don't want to see anybody decide that one day, just because they're off their meds or someone has shamed them around their medicine, that they go jump off the cliff, hang themselves, or drive their car into an 18-wheeler. Yeah. So talk to me about the inception of 
startup wellness, speaking of, of this medicine? Um, so thank you for asking about startup wellness. Startup wellness came about, um, so we are here at, in June of 2023. It started, the idea started percolating in the spring of 2022. Um, we had had, um, known all about Eastern medicine. We brought on a magnificent healer, amazing human being known as Margot Chambers. And she's a Chinese medicine doctor. I just love that. I wish I could be a Chinese. That's not the coolest title. Pretty cool, yeah. She's a Chinese medicine doctor. Um, and Margot was doing acupuncture, Reiki, body healing. Um, she was putting people on nutrition plans that were very Eastern. Mm. Um, and our clients were having magnificent results around that. So we knew the Eastern part of it was good. And so we started doing some research. And what we realized is that there are intensive outpatient programs all over the country, but they're really dinosaur ideas. Uh, mm. And they just keep, you know, relapse prevention, relapse prevention, you know. And yeah. And what I would hear from my clients is like, if I go to one more relapse prevention group, I'm quitting, you know? So my esteemed partners, Jeffrey Van and Patricia Myers and I got together and we said, whoa, what if we could create an IOP, first of all, losing the name IOP, and just create a wellness center where it's a combination of clinical therapy where people can come for their mental health, their grief, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. really really credentialed people but also bring Margot in as our as our eastern medicine expert and then bring in five or six biohacking machines and so what we've created ryan is this curriculum for someone to come in and the way it works at startup wellness which is in santa monica is from 10 to 2 we do our version of an intensive outpatient program four hours a day five days a week a combination of clinical therapy biohacking and Eastern medicine. And then from two to seven, we open it up to you, Ryan. You can come in. You can have some clinical therapy, have some body work, get a smoothie, all in the same place. We're, we have a pretty good name in the industry of what we do and the meaningful outcomes that we, we allow for individuals and families. And I think Startup Wellness is just another division of good people doing good work. Yeah, I agree. You are also the first guest on this podcast who is a parent. Your oldest daughter is, she's 13, right? Yep. Uh, the same age that you and many youth begin to engage in addictive substances and behaviors. And in a world that is flooded with dopamine, I want to know a couple of things. Yep. Are you worried about the well-being of your children? And if so, how do you deal with concerns that your kids could follow a similar path do you incorporate principles of recovery into your family life? I, I'm just going to tell you what I do. And what I hope your audience does is maybe choose one or two or all of them to, to help them with their kids. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, with Elise and Annabelle, and now um, shortly, um, we have a one-year-old named Charlize, who we like to call Charlie. So I got my boy. No. Um, <laughs> and... and um, and, uh, and and with, with Elise and Annabelle, we, we, we have never talked to them baby talk. Mm -hmm. It's always been at an adult level. And I think that they have, whether they know it now, they've liked being at the adult table, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, 
I decided that I was not going to be the dad who goes to parks with their kids and lets them play while I sit on my phone. Mm -hmm. I'm in the sand. I'm in the grass. I'm, I'm down on the ground with them. So I'm present with my kids. Um, number three is that, um, yes, I bring the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous in my recovery. My, my wife is also a black belt Al-Anon. Mm -hmm. So what great two tools to have in terms of being around kids. Um, they know that I'm sober. They know I go to meetings. They know I sometimes go to take birthday cakes that at the end of it, they say, keep coming back. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I've, I've said to Elise, listen, I know you're going to experiment. Mm -hmm. Marijuana, vodka, yeah. beer. But you can't do anything. Elise is his oldest. Yeah, Elise is my oldest. You can't do anything with pills, powder, you know, liquid. Mm -hmm. You just can't cross that line. Yeah. And um, I think... It sounds like what you're doing is you're doing the most that you can to eliminate any pain that is within your control. So you're ready for my fifth one? Yeah. Tell my me. number one job as a parent and as a father is to keep my daughter's shame, pain, trauma, and drama somewhere between a zero and two. Mm. Because mine was at an eight, nine, and ten. Can I read you a quote? And I want to yes. see how this lands with you. It's a the world-renowned physician, author, and addiction medicine specialist, Gabor Mate. And it's a quote from his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which reads, Not all addictions are rooted in abuse or trauma, but I do believe they can all be traced to painful experience. A hurt is at the center of all addictive behaviors. It is present in the gambler, the internet addict, the compulsive shopper, and the workaholic. The wound may not be as deep, and the ache not as excruciating, and it may even be entirely hidden, but it's there. So you're preventing that pain, that pain Ryan, within your control. Ryan, if I can have my three daughters get from zero to 18. On a zero to two. On a zero to they're golden. scale. They're yeah. golden. Mm -hmm. And um, you've done all you can at that point. I've done all I can. So there's really five things I would encourage parents to do. Um, and you know, what's also helpful is my girls see how other people are being parented, seeing how other parents fight, see mm -hmm. how other parents drink or use, and they don't see us doing that. And I think they just, they're like, we got it good. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll tell you a little story about, I think you'll appreciate this. You, you remind me a lot of Annabelle. My, my 10 year old, you guys mm. even look alike, so much alike. And um, I would say about a year ago, Annabelle was going on a camping trip and she says, Papa, I'm all packed, but can we go down to the store and get some stuff for s'mores? I like to surprise them with s'mores. I said, sure, we hop in the car, we drive down the hill, we get graham crackers, chocolate, marshmallows, we load up, get back in the car. We're driving up the hill, I think, I think that's just a good, and out of nowhere, Ryan, she goes, Papa, have you ever been to jail? 10 years old and I'm like um and I'm in my mind going okay what do I do mm -hmm. and I remember you talk to them like adults mm -hmm. they can handle anything rigorous honesty rigorous honesty like that perfect Ryan and I go yeah yeah I've, I've been to jail eight times eight times 
And I now I know I'm like, oh my God. Now, mm-hmm. And I go, I go, yes, I go, yes, Annabelle, but you gotta understand, I, I was young and dumb. Mm-hmm. I was drinking. I was using God, that's such an important lesson for kids to learn. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I think that that really, because it shows your kids that you don't have to be perfect to be loved, that you can change the trajectory of your life, and that honesty and pro-social shame is important in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. And so, um, you know, in real quick fashion, I just said, you know, it's, I said, I haven't done it in 27 years. You know, this is a year ago. And she ponders that. And I, I even threw this in because this is what Father Bill told me. He goes, as I was working with him, he goes, look, let me tell you a math problem, Greg. Greg plus drug, drugs and alcohol equals jail. Why don't you take the middle part of that equation out and see if you ever go to jail? Well, Ryan, in 28 years, I've never been to jail. So for Annabelle, in her 10 years, she's never seen anything close to that, right? So we go home. Six months pass. And she says, you know, I'm going to break your record. I said, what record's that? She goes, your sobriety record. I guess I had just turned 28 years of sobriety. I said, yeah. She goes, I'm going to be sober 100 years. I go, wow, that's pretty cool. She goes, I already got 10. Oh, my God. <laughs> she's, she's just like... Right? You know her. She... <laughs> <laughs> she I call her the baby Stewie of my family. She's, she's, <laughs> she's Stewie. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Is there is there anything else you want to to leave us with, Greg? Well, you know it's funny. Um, when I was in your position as a as a reporter, I always just say, "What question has someone never asked you?" And, and a question that um, someone never has never asked me was, "When you were drinking and using, who were your heroes?" And at first, I think about it like I didn't really have heroes. I was I was really lost in myself, you know, but as I look back, you know, in the early 90s when the wheels were really coming off, my heroes were Ernest, were, um, Ernest Hemingway, mm-hmm. Jim Morrison. Mm-hmm. The Doors movie had just come out. Mm. And, Ryan, you're going to get something out that no one knows. I, I wore leather pants for most of my senior year of college because the Doors movie came out. And I wanted to be like Jim Morrison. <laughs> Do you I, still have those leather pants? I don't have those leather no. pants. But I wore leather pants. I would go to the jukebox. I would put in all those great door songs. Mm-hmm. I would grab That's two pitchers of beer and shoot pool. And, 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 and what was funny is that, you know, a, a, a friend of mine says, you realize your heroes were people that killed themselves. Hemingway put a gun in his mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know exactly what happened to Morrison, but, you know, the people that you loved or you admired were dead. So you were on the path of joining them. What made them your heroes? To be honest, I think there was one part of me that wanted to die. Mm. I wanted to die a romantic death. I heard that only the good die young. Mm. You know? Yeah. So who are your heroes today? Oh, my heroes today are Richard Branson, um, Tom Brady, um, Gabor Mate, my wife. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I see what a mom does. Mm-hmm. It is unbelievable. It is unbelievable mm-hmm. what they do and how they do it and the lack of credit they get. And a single mom, you're my hero. Any single mom I meet is my hero. I saw what my mom had to do and I am like, listen, I will help, I will help paint your house. I will take your trash out. 
I am real sensitive to single moms, and um, and I actually found a good outlet for me. Um, my partner Patricia Myers um, sits on the board of Miriam's House, where it's um, single moms who are fighting through addiction and alcoholism get to live under one roof and keep their kids. And I try to do as much as I can to be part, be there for those women, because trying to get sober. At the same time, raising kids mm -hmm. and putting food on the table. That's that's my hero. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a perfect place to end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Greg. Thank you, Ryan. This has been Ryan Keneally with the Modern Profits Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and follow the podcast as it really helps spread the wisdom and make an impact.